A quick hello and we're good to go. Welcome to the show, Sarah Sennett. <laughs> yeah, you look like Animal from the Muppets. Yeah, there, thank the you. Thank oh, you. oh sh- that was so rude. Um, Can I be Big Bird instead? Yeah, I think that would probably suit you. Yeah. I, Big I, Bird's I, great. I quite like Big Bird. Or you could be, uh, what's the name of the drummer from... Um, Motorhead, he's called Animal. It's Animal Taylor. Mm, I'm not a massive Motorhead fan. I know that will probably turn off half our audience right now. But Right, well, that's me out already. Yeah, so. there we go. Done. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> brilliant. Right. Well, I looked up your brand, Serp, and I had a brilliant, wonderful surprise. If we can show that Ooh. first one, when we search, search for Sarah Sennett, mm-hmm. we actually get an event, Sarah Sennett event in the right-hand side in the knowledge panel place. See results about Sarah Senate event, curious as I am. Oh, and on the left-hand side, we have digital marketing, digital strategies, which is the CaliCube Tuesdays image. So we've already kind of invaded your brand SERP immediately. <laughs> and you click on that right-hand result, the see results about, and we show the next screen. And it is, da-da-da-da, this is, this is Animal Taylor. This is the drum roll bit. Mm. There you go. Sarah Senate event, CaliCube hey. 2021. Look this is... CaliCube in the Knowledge Graph, pushing you, Sarah Sennett, as an event into the Knowledge Graph, which is A, Google being pretty darn smart, because mm. this is new, and B, us being able to get CaliCube Tuesdays, a knowledge panel, pretty much every time. In fact, no, every time now when we publish them, which is wonderful. Then I looked further, and if we show the third one. Oh, and we see a new job there. Yeah, CaliCube Tuesdays, one year old today. Hey, happy birthday, CaliCube Tuesdays. Yay. This is, and in Yay. fact, I said 51. I'm really stupid. It's 52, isn't it? Because next week yeah. is the first one of the next year. So I really, really, really messed that up. <laughs> so CaliCube Tuesdays, one-year-old today, you are the glorious person who gets to celebrate one year of CaliCube Tuesdays with me. Yay. Now, I started CaliCube Tuesdays because I couldn't go to conferences anymore. And I thought naively, like everybody else, well, a few months, then I'll be back on the road and we can close the event down and I can get the podcast back on the road. How wrong was I? Yeah. Because you love and it? That, because it's doing so well? Because you get great Because uh, I can't get out. Because you can't get out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, me. No, I also love it. And it's wonderful doing this with Anton and having guests like mm. you on board. But truth be told, I think I'm going to carry on even after the pandemic Mm. thing has finished, which is what we're going to talk about. Mm. But I really didn't expect to be here a year later on a Tuesday afternoon, still doing CaliCube Tuesdays. I thought it was a very temporary solution. And I think when the pandemic hit, we got the lockdown. Everybody thought that. And now, so we have two questions. One of which is, we all thought it was going to be temporary and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It became incredibly unpredictable, which is what we're going to talk about. And now I think mm-hmm. it's all over and it's all going to go back to normal. Ah, that is interesting. And I wonder how much to do with your geographic location that perception is, because I have a suspicion that each of our perceptions about how things have changed and how things will move forward are very influenced by our locality. Oh, right. OK. I mean, I'm in France and it's been very strange and I'm sure it was strange in the UK but Mm. I'm reasonably hopeful that it will be reasonably normal from now on and in the UK I suspect maybe it's just we're naive and we hope it's going to be. I think there's a a strong element of that as well 
there was something that has stuck in my mind since the beginning of all of this was about leaving behind the things we don't want to carry forward and taking forward the things that we do into what I imagine was perceived as some kind of nirvana that we were heading off into after the pandemic. But Mm. I think the reality is that some things will go back to normal or previous uh, and other things probably won't. Right. And you can tell us exactly which things will and which things won't. (laughs) No, I can't. But I can draw on the opinions of people much cleverer than I. So I've been... I've been really interested in this because as a digital strategist trying to get the the right message to the right person at the right time, which is, as we all know, the, the marketing golden cookie, the way that audiences are behaving online has obviously been through a giant upheaval over the last 12 months. And when you throw into it the latest iOS 14 update, and when you throw into it the potential cookie-less future that we're talking about, Ooh. put a pin in that, we'll come back to it, because I know there's going to be a question there. No, thank you very <laughs> much. Yeah, sorry, put a pin, that just reminds me of the, is it is it Bolt, the cartoon? There's a guy in that who uh, says put a pin in it, and it basically means it. that we're never going to talk about it again. No, we will. We, oh, we right. absolutely will. Yeah, because it, it's really important um, to how we build audiences and how we understand what our audiences are doing. Ooh. But anyway, if you if you get away from all of that, the, what I'm trying to get to is that there, there are these things that have changed. There are things that probably won't go back to normal. There are things that might go back to normal. And then you've also got added into this new stuff that has come into our world that either got accelerated or created as a result of the pandemic. So I I wanted to try and make this a little bit more real for folks so it's clearer what I'm talking about. What, and this is a question for you, Jason, what is something you have done differently online, either purchasing or content consumption or anything like that differently? What have you done differently since the start of the pandemic? Right, you've turned the tables on me. This isn't the idea. I haven't prepared I at all to answer I know, which is why I didn't tell you, because I just want the first thing. What, what have you shopped for differently? Supermarket. There you go. I, I, I actually, there's a thing in France, and they've called it drive, which is okay. basically where you drive. But but drive is obviously a, an English word. So mm-hmm. now you actually, and I was thinking about it this morning when I went to pick up my drive products on mm-hmm. foot, in the big city, is it's called pedestrian drive, which just doesn't make sense. That makes no sense whatsoever. And every time I look at it, I think, wow, this is really weird. But uh, I, I don't go to supermarkets to buy food. I just go and pick it up now. Mm, interesting. Because the reason for me asking that is I was, one, hoping that you were going to say that. But also oh. the the whole way that we purchase food and drink is probably one of the biggest areas that's been impacted as a result right. of the pandemic. I thought it so, was just me, and but yeah. in fact, you're 100% right. Now I think about it, that's really self-centered yeah. and stupid of me. <laughs> no, it's not at all. It just means that um, being a, a resourceful human that it needs to eat and drink, you know, where do you go find that? And the answer during lockdown was not go to the supermarket. It was buy it online and either get right. it delivered or get it picked up. Um, so... Actually, one of the pieces of research that I read, food and drink is one of the fastest growing verticals as a result of post-pandemic shopping habits. So online sales grew 58% year on year in the US. Wow. So last 12 months to 12 months before. So over 50% growth as a result of pandemic. And what's interesting about that is it's not just 
existing buyers. It's not just people who would do it a little bit, buying all of their food and drink online. It's new audiences coming into that market. Um, and I am one of those. You know, I previously had never shopped online with my supermarket. And I would always try and go to the local greengrocer, you know, yeah. go into town on a Saturday morning and support the local farmer's market. Um, and all of that was suddenly taken away. So the, you know, Amazon pantry suddenly became a thing in my life that I'd never tried before. And oh, uh, well, I didn't know Amazon prepare. did it, but obviously I'm completely living in the wrong century. <laughs> but uh, I use the place which is right opposite my house and I can just go down and pick mm. it up um, mm. in my on, on foot in the drive, which still freaks me out. Um, it's but, a bit scary. Yeah, but I mean, did Amazon make an enormous inroads there or did the big supermarkets like Tesco manage to keep their own? Um, that's a good question. I don't specifically know the answer to that. Amazon Pantry has been around since before the pandemic, though. It was not a pandemic response. It was just something that I personally shifted to because I knew it was there because I'd mm. done it before. I'd experimented with it. Um, but the the piece of research in particular that I'm drawing on for that sort of 58% year on year growth is that the the source said that it's not expected to drop back in 2022. Right. So people are not expected to just stop buying online food and drink uh, next year. They they expect that it's going to be a a bit of a, a hybrid of some local, some bought online. So food and drink as a vertical might not see a drop at all. It might stay at this elevated rate. All right, brilliant. I mean, the thing is, once you've kind of thought, I can just sit at home, click on the button and get my products, and I don't exactly. have to go and st stand next to the horrible neighbour who has a smelly <laughs> dog under her coat pretending that it's not a dog. This is this is local stories with the woman down the supermarket <laughs> who has a dog that she. I don't know what village you're living in, but and that it, sounds great. <laughs> well, the thing is, everybody turns a blind eye to it, and she talks to it, and it's very strange because you can see it's a dog, and it barks from time to time. And it's anyway, that's a long story. But what <laughs> make, that makes me think of is the delivery people must have had mm. phenomenal growth as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and personal experience speaks directly to that. You know, you couldn't get any more delivery slots from either Tesco's or Sainsbury's. And I'm pretty sure the rest of the retailers were the same. They just were not taking on any more delivery slot customers at that point. You know, we're talking like early lockdown in the UK. So, you know, just over 12 months ago right. um, because they just, they couldn't cope with the capacity. I'd be interested to see what it's like now. I know um, Ocado are going big over here at the moment with um, Ocado for everybody, I think is the, the tagline. Um, so they are obviously aware of this trend and they're trying to get as much of that market as they can right now while people are still shopping online. I guess they're hesitant about whether it is going to go back to normal or well, not. That, that was the question. I mean, if they think, oh, I'll jump on the bandwagon and then it all falls mm. apart because everybody goes back to normal. Mm. And they, they're they in a really bad situation in that they've invested loads of money in this infrastructure and the delivery system and potentially, uh, I mean, they've sorted out the entire kind of infrastructure to be able to deliver and then all of a sudden it all drops off. Are people really scared of that? Um, in some areas, possibly. Um, food and drink is not one of the ones expected to drop back in that way. All right, okay. Which, which ones are? If, if you have any uh, if I have them here so um enduring... where should I not invest <laughs> <laughs> well areas of enduring change uh, and I'm jumping into a McKinsey report here because I always like to reference people who are smarter than me um hygiene health and hygiene is expected to have an enduring 
change in um, behavior. Quite whether that means purchasing of product or purchasing of experiences, I'm not quite sure. I mean, does that mean uh, apps for well-being like Calm or Headspace? You know, yeah. does it also include that as a as well as um, you know healthcare products? I, I'm not sure. Um, it doesn't say. Um, but um, the interesting thing about the the behaviours and what's going to endure and what's not is that McKinsey think that price sensitivity and the the reduction in sensitivity that's happened over the course of the pandemic because need has outweighed price sensitivity. Right. They think that is going to be an enduring behaviour. So people, well, the people no longer care about price. Not no longer care, but will pay for what they want and pay for what they need, and also pay for brands they trust. Ooh, so it pushes us all to build brand and make sure that people trust us so that they will then buy Definitely. from us without hesitation, even at yeah. a higher price. Yeah, exactly. And that is a, a bit of a ding, ding, ding moment. Um, brand loyalty is something that is suddenly, I think, going to become much more valuable. We already know that it, it's crucial and we already know you you can't avoid doing brand-related activities. And as an acquisition-based marketer, I put my hands up and say I struggle with that sometimes because you can't directly relate what you put into what you get out, um, right. but you can't avoid doing it. And it's it's hugely important when you look at this audience that is, you know, allegedly going to be less sensitive to price and will pay more to get what they want. Right. Okay. Because I mean, I've always thought if it's convenient and I don't have specific money problems right now where I'm tight for cash. Mm. I'd rather have the convenience and just go with it and pay a little bit more and it's never really bothered me. Mm. Uh, although, obviously, when I've been in periods when I haven't had money, I worry about think about the money, uh, the, the price sensitivity a lot more. Mm. So we, we basically the bingo moment for brands with unpredictable audiences is to say, build a brand, then they don't care about the money, then I don't care about the fact they're unpredictable because they will be predictable because they'll love me so much. Yeah, in a nutshell. All right, we can stop the interview there. Thank you very much. That was <laughs> yeah, brilliant. <I'm> fine. <laughs> but okay, I mean, from from my mm. perspective, you've seen kind of the last year roll out, and mm. I think a lot of us. I mean, I was talking to the people at SE Ranking about. They were asking me, "How did you feel all year?" And I spent the whole time, every two weeks, thinking it's going to get better. No, mm. it's not. Oh, it's going to get. No, it's not. And it was this kind of two week up and down cycle. Yeah. Of extreme optimism followed by um, crumbs, it's going to keep going. Um, do you, basically, that made me, I would have thought, a very unpredictable consumer. Yeah, definitely, because your online behaviors would have changed depending on how you were feeling, for sure. So what I mean when I say unpredictable audiences is you, you've got that, uh, all of those human factors impacting how we collectively as a species have responded to being in lockdown, being isolated from our usual activities and the things that keep us happy and being uh, separated from our routine. Um, and then you've got the technological side of it, which we can come on to talk about now, which is, you know, the the iOS 14 now that has reduced our ability to track across app and build audiences in platforms like Facebook ads. Right. And then when you add our cookie-less future into our potential cookie-less future into it, how how am I as a digital strategist going to put together that audience based on activities and and known journeys? It, you know, it's just it's either going to be really different or it's just not going to be done like that in the future. 
Right. And no, I don't have but, an answer for that. But, it's, no, well, but it does strike me. You've just basically done the dum- double whammy, which is, mm. A, we're, we now think, oh, maybe it's going to get back to normal, but it never will be normal again. It will always be different to how it was before. Things have fundamentally changed. And secondly, the cookie-less iOS 14 world means mm. that we won't even be able to track it, which means we've got a double whammy to deal with. Yeah. Is it just time to give up? <laughs> no, it's time to be more resourceful. Oh, um, right. No, the the iOS 14 thing, I have seen figures that show maybe about 15% of iOS 14 users are actually opting in to be tracked. So it's tiny. And we're already seeing this across campaigns we're running for our clients, that the size and availability of audiences in platforms like Facebook ads are, are just plummeting because people's activity is not being tracked and they're not sharing that data. So you can't do things you used to around interests, around in-market audiences. You know, all of that sort of um, targeted stuff we used to do through paid is has got to evolve because, uh, you know, I can't believe that suddenly Google Ads and Facebook Ads and, you know, all the other ad platforms are just suddenly going to go, oh, well, you know, that's it for us. You know, that's just not going to happen. So no. how else is that world going to function? Um Still, I still don't know. But what I do know is that in the meantime, this comes back to what I was saying about being more resourceful, there are things that can be done. Right, okay. Ooh, that was what I was interested in because mm. obviously kind of this lack of tracking both of the cookie, cookie-less world that is potentially about to hit us plus iOS yeah. 14. But iOS 14 might actually just be a nice way to prepare for the cookie-less world. If mm. we start looking at that, start trying to figure out how we can deal with that, maybe it will give us some clues for the future. But from what I've understood, you already know what you're going to do and you're going to tell us. I already know what I'm going to do and what I'm going to recommend for our clients in the short term. I think the the big unknown for me is how are platforms like Google Analytics going to function in a cookie-less world? Right. I still don't feel like we have really a sense of what Google is going to do. Um, I mean, my instinct is that there will probably be even more of a walled garden in Google's land. And if you want to go and advertise to people in Google land that you have to pay a premium to do that, uh, it just won't happen through cookies. Um, and I suspect the same is true with Apple and Facebook to a certain extent. I, I'm imagining that we're actually going to end up with even less data across channels than we have at the moment, which right, is going to um, cause some challenges. Yeah, no, sorry. We'll come to the challenge in a moment. But what strikes me there is we already had a walled garden situation in all of these kind of big tech companies where they're walling people in more and more. Mm. So this is actually just another opportunity for them to wall us all in even more than it, than it was before. Yeah. Well, you you, you yeah, think they're going to do it in a, in a kind of nefarious manner? I don't know if I could commit to the word nefarious. I don't know. Well, I only used the word nefarious because I was watching um, – What's it called in English? The one with the bald, the guy with the bald head with the small children, the cartoon. Bald head and small children. With Doctor Nefario, who's the evil doctor oh, sidekick. Oh, um, Despicable Me. Yeah, thank you very much. I was just <laughs> thinking about, and I, I was trying to think of the right word, and all I could think of was the guy with a bald head, Despicable Me. Three kids. Three kids and Doctor Nefario. So mm. not nefarious. You wouldn't go that far. I was maybe pushing it. Well, I don't know. I mean. I have to wonder about the intentions of big tech when they say they're doing things for the benefit of their users, as, mm. uh, you know, I think any healthy skeptic should. And 
I, I found it quite difficult reading the the content and the announcements around iOS 14 and Apple's mm. reasoning behind it. And while I agree with the sentiment, I think, if you take me as the marketer out of the equation, I think we should be protecting our privacy more. Um, you have to wonder what's in it for them. Uh, you know, the skeptic in me is going, well, why is big tech making it harder for, to make money? Right. But what big tech are doing is saying, I mean, I, he, Tim Cook, I, I would imagine, is saying we're protecting you. Mm. But everything you do on an Apple device is t- totally tracked. And yeah. as you say, you know, I mean, you, they're not giving you less tracking or more privacy within their walled garden and it's going to be true no they're saying they're saying we're building the walls higher and we're not sharing it outside of our walled garden oh that's scary but i mean as a user what you then end up with here's a big debate with for people i think is there's always this trade-off of saying if i allow i i use google a lot Mm. if i allow google to track me it gives me great service when i need it and that convenience Mm. is a price or the privacy is a price I'm willing to pay for that convenience, same with Apple, same with all the other ones. Um, and there is that that kind of trade-off. Mm. Do, do we not as human beings tend to just kind of think, well, I, I just want an easy life? Well, I would have expected that, which is why I was a bit stunned to see that only 15% of iOS users have actually opted into tracking across apps point. on device. Because I would have thought it made sense for us to be served ads that actually make sense to us rather than ads that know nothing about us and are potentially wasting our time because if you get an ad that's actually targeted to you and is actually useful which is kind of the the end game of what we're trying to do then you're you're finding a solution to the problem that scarily somebody knows you have so why would you want non-relevant ads i i don't get it so yeah i'm surprised that the opt-in rate is that low i do think there is a, a certain amount of scaremongering going on yeah, but then there's an advantage for Google with that in the sense that when you're using push technology, you need to necessarily know what the person is looking for in market. Mm. Whereas you're using pull technology, which is people searching for something, you don't need to know you can make it pertinent. So is this not a shift back towards um, pull technologies? Yeah. Pool advertising? Yeah, I do think so. I, I do think so. And it, it kind of, uh, that starts... Uh, starts to transition nicely into me kind of talking about potentially it sounds like we've planned the whole thing it does sound like we've planned the whole thing it brings it in nicely too but what you're just doing if i may say so is manipulating me through the talk you wanted to give by (laughs) pushing me towards the right questions and i do thank you Oh, I can stop at any point if you want. You no, can you're doing a genius job because random. <laughs> I, I've got this impression that I've got kind of free spirit and free thought, but in fact, I'm just being in driven fact, down. I'm just leading you. <laughs> <laughs> so it brings us nicely into whatever it is you wanted to talk about next, which I've forgotten what the question was. No, that's fine. Um, I basically uh, was going to talk about push uh, versus pull. So. Right. We know that pushing things in front of people is getting harder and more expensive. Um, But we also know that with unpredictable behaviours and how things have changed over the last 12 months, that we have potentially a greater opportunity out there that once we've got people into our brand world to keep them there. And I don't know if it's just my perception because I've spent a lot of my time doing acquisition-based stuff, but I do think the retention and loyalty piece doesn't get enough coverage and enough talking about. 
So that might just be my my own perception, but it it's kind of the area that I want to jump into um, when we're talking about things that you can do. And um, none of this is going to be particularly revelatory. You know, it, it's not that we need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to, as marketers, adjust our priorities. So I think the big thing for me is to major on retention and loyalty. Right. And what we're seeing with clients, so in, in my day job at Swanky, um, you know, we're working with e-commerce clients and they obviously have uh, the battle of that repeat purchase and that repeat engagement. And what we're finding is that with loyalty programs that either give you points for a certain behavior or give you rewards at certain points in the relationship, you can double, triple your ROI on those programs Something without even without even investing in any more push advertising, without doing any more acquisition if you didn't want to. Obviously, that is, you know, all of that hangs on having a good product and good customer service Mm. and creating that good end-to-end experience. But you can create some awesome results with loyalty programs. Right. I mean, that, that, so you, there's multiple things there that just kind of unpack in my little brain, one of which is John Mueller mm. from Google talking about um, pull queries, which mm. is basically brand queries. He, he was saying at the beginning of the year, you know, that's where people are going to need to start focusing and probably mm. predicting the, the what's coming now is saying your branded queries are going to be the ones that are the most valuable because you can't track people so easily across all these different platforms. You're going to end yeah. up just looking at the brand queries Particularly brand surfs, luckily for me. So I'm I'm in the money this <laughs> lucky year. Lucky for you. Um, for for seeing how effective those strategies are, because the growth in brand searches implies people are seeing us on all these different platforms. We can't track it, but we can potentially get some kind of idea. Would that yeah. be a fair statement? That would absolutely be a fair statement. It is a nightmare for a data-driven marketer like me who wants to see the detail of every single source and every single interaction. Um, But you have to equate that elevation of brand queries and and volume of brand queries with activity that you're doing, and it could be anywhere. You know, previously we would have looked at brand queries and uplift there as a result of things like like sponsorship or PR or offline exposure or you know any of those things where there genuinely isn't a physical link between the advertising and the online world whereas now because there there is a link but we don't have access to that data you have to think of it as separate in the same sort of way so uh yeah it's it's going to be really tricky for for data-led folks like myself who who want to know how each source is performing and to be able to implement whatever attribution models they want to to see how each channel is performing and its role in all of this um yeah i think i think there's going to be a period and it's coming really soon where we're going to have to accept that we've got volume of brand queries on one side and results coming out the other side and we know less and less about what's going on in the middle right but yeah, no, 100%. And, but we're, we're now going to be looking at a situation where you're saying, well, I've got to throw all this money at all these different platforms and I can track a certain amount of things that are coming in. I can actually track the multi-touch mm. and there's a jump of faith and that's impossible mm. to sell to the boss or to the client. Yeah, completely. And so content marketers are out of luck. Content marketers who are chasing the algorithm are out of luck, I think. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. an interesting distinction. Yeah, I think content marketers who are brand focused and value focused, there will always be a return for that. But 
the level of detail that I think you'll be able to get out of the, the platforms, you know, if we're heading into cookie-less land, you know, what do you get out of analytics that says this piece of content over this piece of content? I think that level of granularity might disappear. But, um, yeah, I think I think content marketers who are focused on value will always have a role to play. But then another thought strikes mm. me is that if you're saying this piece of content against this piece of content with the data we've got from our little mm. our own little world garden, which is our own site and our little universe, yeah, yeah. yeah. You you could find different ways of, of measuring the KPIs for different pieces of content in terms of the ones that work and the ones that don't for an audience we can identify and then extrapolate out yeah, to where those absolutely. audiences tend to hang out, which is going to give enormous amounts of um, what well, rope, an enormous amount of, of work for the, the platforms that extrapolate data to find industry trends and mm. persona trends. Would that be a, yeah. a way forward? Yeah, I think so. I'm expecting that we'll see on a lot more of the sites that we build and I've built in the past with my previous agency that they have inbuilt dashboards in a way that they've never had before. Um, you know, I, I came from a WordPress agency and we'd, we'd you know, throw up um, a plugin to monitor on-site on performance. But why bother when analytics is such a good tool? Well, the answer is now that you're going to have to because the, the source of data for your own site and how it's performing in your own dashboard is potentially going to be more reliable than a third-party tool, especially with however we transition into cookie-less world. So you, you're going to have to make use of the data that you do have versus worrying about what you don't have. And right. I'm sort of saying that as a bit of a pet talk to myself because mm. I'm, uh, I can already feel that I am uncomfortable about having less data to play with because I think it's going to impact decision-making and it's going to impact ROI yeah. to start with. So you can't short-term plan this. You have to long-term plan it and... In many ways, that opens up the door for more brand-related stuff because we all know that brand-related activities are not short-term play. Sure. I mean, I, I was talking to Chris Liversidge, who's an English guy who works with – I mean, he was basically saying that they can predict or they can extrapolate data to figure out how much return on investment you're getting from an advertisement on the side of a bus. That's very cool. And he was suggesting that they can do it actually very accurately – and then I said, well, who do you work for? And he was basically saying British Telecom and some other enormous companies saying, it's yeah. great for big companies like that. What do small companies do? Because the data yeah. on my WordPress site is so tiny. I can't yeah. possibly draw any conclusions from it. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely the same. And, and that's where you'll have to rely on things from the platforms. Like I can imagine WordPress as uh, an organization. Oh, that's a good idea already. And I, I haven't even heard it yet, but it's a brilliant idea. <laughs> You're going to have to rely on um, on the the impact the impact the input from platforms like WordPress and the reports that they publish to say this is what a lot of people are doing on our platform. Um, oh, yeah. And I suspect uh, if we take WordPress as that example, I expect things like um, Yoast will only get more uh, important and insightful. Mm. I mean, I've I've not used it in about six months now, um, but. You know, I know Yoast is absolutely vital to every WordPress site that I've ever worked on. And yeah. uh, it's only going to grow in its capabilities. So and if we know that on platform stats and data is going to be our primary source in the future, then I think there's a huge opportunity for Yoast and other plugins to to grow and to to have more of a role in the in the decision making that happens up front. 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's the aggregated data from these major platforms. Mm. It gives you even reason not to strike out and try and build your own website. And Jono Alderson from Yoast always says, why reinvent the, why would the wheel? You? Why would you make all that effort to develop this whole website when somebody else has already done it for you and all you need to do is add some plugins? And if you're intelligent mm. with it, it's actually going to work fine. Yeah. And the, yet another reason is, and they can share the data, the aggregate data with you, so you can yeah. understand an audience even when you've got a tiny, tiny little chunk of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll have to look to more uh, more trend-related data, more mm. industry reports, more, more research-based stuff. You know, that's why I refer back to McKinsey and, you know, I'm always looking at what Shopify produce because uh, they have access to that aggregated data. Um, to get an idea of what the trends are and what audiences are doing. Right. Oh, market research firms are going to come mm. back into their own again. Oh, dear. How very depressing. <laughs> well, I think market research obviously has a role to play, but I don't know. I mean, I don't have first-hand experience of large-scale market research, so so I can't really comment. But my feeling no, I'm, is I'm just being rude because get... I don't like people ringing me up and saying, have you got time for 10 questions? The answer oh, is yeah, no, no, I don't. I don't. Yeah. I don't think that's going to be a thing. I don't right, think because okay. because who has time for that? Like we we're not suddenly even though online behavior has changed and our whole world has shifted in the last 12 months. Nobody still has time or ever has time for that. Can you just answer 10 questions, please? And also, I think we're all a lot more skeptical when somebody you don't know rings you up and says, I want lots of information from you because the answer is no. Hang up. <laughs> You know, that, that's what we're all being taught in order to not give away information that we shouldn't yeah. be. Yeah, no, and, and it is surprising that having been locked down for you, you would have thought, I mean, I've talked to so many people who say, oh, I thought I'd have loads of time, but actually I've got less mm. time. Yeah. Uh, we've ended up actually filling that time with lots of other things. I mean, I built my CaliCube Pro platform. You've got yourself a new job mm. um, where you're saying it's growing so fast you can barely keep up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's e-commerce life at the moment. So one of the things that, that Shopify found in their research was that they reckon the e-commerce landscape accelerated <laughs> 10 years in three months at the beginning of 2020 in the US. Right. So, you know, that speaks directly to people not being able to get what they want locally. Um, you know, I can't remember what proportion of the e-commerce web that Shopify runs, but it, it's a large proportion. And if they're seeing 10 years worth of growth in one quarter, you have to wonder what is on the other side driving that. And it, it's got to be need. Sure. Right. OK. So to conclude, I want your conclusion about I mean, what strikes me about this conversation is you said unpredictable audience. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't sound so very exciting as a topic, but... We have an unpredictable audience because of the current situation, the ongoing previous situation, the one that's now coming up that we've got no idea how it's going to pan out, and the fact that we can't tra track them. So even if they were predictable, we would find it difficult predicting them because we can't track them. Yeah. The fact that we've got this double whammy of cookie-less world, iOS 14, and people being unpredictable because we've never been – humankind in the recent past has never been in a similar, similar situation – yeah. What do we do short term? What do we do long term? That's your, your conclusion. Off you go, Sarah. Well, the top line is the same for both. It's continue oh. to add value. Always do the things that add value to your audience. Um, short term, I think you have to make the most of the audience that you do have and wherever they live. And I think you have to separate 
what you're doing as a marketer from what you expect to see, which I know is incredibly simple to say, and I am going to struggle with it myself. But just because you can't track the things happening doesn't mean they're not happening. So if you add value to your audience and you know your audience well, and you've got all of that that groundwork in there that says, I know who my customers are, I know what they want, and I'm keeping in touch with them, and we're continually getting that feedback cycle, then as long as you're providing, as long as you're adding value, the, the things will happen that you want to drive. What you will miss is that chunk in the middle of being able to track it, which is scary, and I get stomach pains just thinking about it. But I think oh, what will well, it's it's incredibly difficult for a, a control freak and a data driven person to miss that middle bit. Both of which I'm happy to label. You know, you could stick a label on my forehead that says control freak, and nobody would be surprised. Um, long term, I think this this whole cookieless uh, transition will will end up with like a new normal, which I know is a massively overused phrase, which is probably why it's imprinted in my brain. But I think we'll we'll get to a place where there will be a way that we can track. I don't know if that is going to be how we'll think of it, but there will be data on the people that we want to, to get to talk to. Because I just don't, because attached to that is revenue. And I don't think that any of the tech platforms are going to let that revenue slide just because... The, the technology that's driving it, cookies or opt-ins or whatever, is changing. I think it's just it's just going to all shift a little bit. So I th- that's why I say I think the, the top line is always add value. And if you know your audiences, the results will happen. Long term, I think we'll be able to adjust and see what, what our audience is doing in a different way. Whether that's on platform, I don't know. Yeah, no, brilliant. I, that, that, I mean, I like that kind of philosophical idea is we all think, oh, it's all going to change, panic, 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 panic. But in fact, what we end up doing is adapting and evolving to yeah. to solve these problems. We just don't know where it's going to be, and it can seem scary right now. Yeah. I do like the idea that you're missing the bit in the middle. Sarah Sennett, missing the bit in the middle. Missing the bit in the middle, yeah. And it, saying, it absolutely is. <laughs> well, it's know your audience, bring them value, yeah. serve them well. Yeah. And you'd be fine, but that's just good marketing, and it should it always have been like that. It is just good marketing, you see? And that's the second time you've taken that line away from me. But I'll forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. That was absolutely awesome. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Uh, next week, it's going to be Andy Crestedina. Um, if we can have that up on screen, that's going to be absolutely wonderful. Manage your personal reputation in search. He wrote a wonderful article about that. I felt pretty jealous because it was such a good article, uh, <laughs> and I wish I had written it. But I didn't. Andy did. And he's really great. Thank you very much, Sarah. Quick goodbye to and the show. Thank you, Sarah. And you're singing. (laughs) Ta-da. Ta-da.